0: Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Just a couple of housekeeping items first before we begin our episode. The school year is wrapping up in its own strange way due to COVID. Congratulations to all the seniors out there for making it this far. I know that this isn't how you imagined finishing up high school, but I promise you that the further down the road you get, the more you'll be able to glean lessons from this time. It'll be like a badge of honor that you graduated the year of a major world event. I also encourage you not to let the uncertainty of the future keep you from making plans and pursuing them with absolute commitment. They may be subject to change, but you don't have to put your life on hold during this time. Be creative and be committed to making the most out of these years that you have in front of you. Even though the school year has ended, I'm still going to be putting out episodes. This has really been a passion project for me, so I'm going to stick to it. I plan to keep pace with the come follow me schedule as much as possible. Up until now, I've really been focused on getting this out to my students, and if other people listen to it, that's great. I haven't really marketed it anywhere, but now that the school year is ending, I'm going to start putting it out there a little more. So if you've liked the material I've been putting out, if this has been a value to your study of the Book of Mormon, consider recommending it to a friend or to members of your ward. Also, if you're listening on iTunes, consider rating the podcast and giving it a review. Thanks. Okay, enough of that. In our last episode, we looked at Mosiah 19-22, through which was a major chunk of history that included the death of Noah, the scattering of his priests, the rise of Limhi as king, their continued struggles with the Lamanites, the coming of Ammon and his search party from Zarahemla, and finally the liberation of the people of Limhi from Lamanite rule, and their exodus back to Zarahemla. Chapter 22 concluded our first flashback in the book of Mosiah. Today we begin our second flashback, which will focus on Alma and the Church of Christ. Mormon will pick up their story where we left off, with them fleeing Noah's army with 450 people. The last time we read about the church was in Mosiah 18, and we talked at length about how they were trying something new. They were building a community based around a belief in the power of the suffering Lamb and the resurrection. To join this community may be first imagined by Abinadi, but actualized by Alma, people had to covenant to live in a way that served as evidence to Christ's self-sacrificing power. They promised to bear one another's burdens, mourn with those who mourn, comfort those who stand in need of comfort, and to do it in every when, everywhere, and every how, even until death. Their belief in the resurrection freed them up from the need to place self-preservation above all other considerations, what Benjamin described as the natural man and allowed them to focus on loving others. They shared their time, their substance, they cared for each other, and then Mormon left us hanging with the rest of the story. What happens to this church? How long were they able to sustain this unique community? Did they really pull it off? Or did they just do as many religions have done and start off with grand ideas only to assimilate back into the broader culture after a while? Now we get to find out the answer to these questions. By way of reminder, Abinadi was likely executed in the early 150s B.C. We don't know exactly how long Alma preached in secret in the land of Nephi or when exactly they fled, but it's safe to assume that it didn't take long before Noah discovered the existence of the church and drove them into the wilderness. So maybe as early as 153 B.C. or as late as 150 or 149 B.C. That's an important bit of information because it's going to change how we read the following chapters and how we think of some really important characters going forward. This flashback will cover from the time the church flees into the wilderness until their exodus to Zarahemla in about 118 BC. That's about 35 years in two chapters. Alma will no longer be a young man when they get to Zarahemla. He'll be a mature leader. He'll also be a father of at least one son, who we've come to know as Alma the Younger. Alma the Younger might not be as young as we think when they get to Zarahemla. He could be in his early 30s, depending on when he was born. For example, if Alma the Younger was born in 150 BC, he would have arrived in Zarahemla at the age of 32. He exits Mormon's narrative somewhat mysteriously around 73 BC, making him a very reasonable 77 if he were born in 150. He could be a little older or a little younger but he's very likely older than we usually imagine him. That changes things a bit going forward. We're going to start our look into chapter 23 with verses 1 through 18. Alma's people are warned by the Lord to flee from Noah's army. They take what they can, and they're able to outrun the army because the Lord did strengthen them. That's an interesting moment of comparison. Noah and his people couldn't outrun the Lamanites, so he commanded the men to leave their wives and children. Under Alma, they trust in the Lord and are able to preserve their families. There's probably a principle in there for managing families in a chaotic world. They take an eight days journey into the wilderness, and they find a very beautiful and pleasant land, a land of pure water. And they decide that that is where they will make their home. The people immediately want Alma to be their king. We've seen this before. The people wanted Nephi to be their king, and he had his concerns about the prospect, but he went through with it. That turned out to be a really impactful decision since we are now 400 plus years later and the Nephites are still in the habit of choosing kings. But something kind of remarkable happens here. Alma tells his people, Behold, it is not expedient that we should have a king. For thus saith the Lord, Ye shall not esteem one flesh above another, or one man shall not think himself above another. He then reminds them of the mess that was King Noah. We've talked about the differences between state power and prophetic power, and right at this moment, Alma gets to choose which one he wants. Does he want to create a system of power? Remember, systems of power tend to protect themselves at the expense of people. Or does he want to give this new type of community a real chance to do something unique? He chooses the latter, and it is an immensely impactful decision. If he would have become king it very well could have dramatically altered the next 150 years for the Nephites. And pay attention to the reasons that he gives. He believes in the equality of people and thinks that the way they organize themselves should reflect that. There's a little bit in here about the benefit that a king would offer if you always had just men to be your king. But they've learned firsthand that that just isn't a reality. So they stick with the prophetic power and... Alma tells his people to stand fast in this liberty wherewith ye have been made free, and that you trust no man to be a king over you, and also trust no one to be your teacher nor your minister except he be a man of God, walking in his ways and keeping his commandments. Thus did Alma teach his people that every man should love his neighbor as himself, that there should be no contention among them. I want to caution you here. There's a tendency to understand history In our own context rather than the context that it's happening we do this in part because it's easier it comes more naturally to us it also allows us to pick and choose which parts of history best suit our needs we do this all the time especially when we're looking at national histories for example I've been reading through the book 1776 and even though I've studied American history professionally I'm blown away at how much more interesting and complex these people were than the stories we generally hear. George Washington wasn't a timeless monument cut out of marble during the Revolutionary War. He was a man in his early 40s that had to deal with all kinds of logistical nightmares and who often regretted having taken command. He once wrote to his brother and told him that if he knew that he was going to need to fight that type of war with those type of men, he wouldn't have agreed to lead them. That is crazy interesting. It's also not the story that we hear. We don't often memorialize how when signing a document that said we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. We don't often memorialize that many of the signatories to that document literally owned human beings, including Thomas Jefferson, who helped write the thing. So let me say this about reading Alma's or any other Book of Mormon's Prophets commentaries on the pros and cons of a system of government. The past is a foreign country. If we were there, it would look very different than we tend to imagine. It's helpful to look at principles and to understand that those principles can find various forms of application. The principles that Alma is teaching here are the equality of God's children, the need to love one another as oneself, the need to take into account how leaders live their lives and not just what they say a warning against trusting in individuals over principles of truth, and linking how we think about liberty with righteousness. Those principles can apply in any number of historical, religious, national, and political contexts. Okay, rant over. We learn that even though Alma rejects the role of king, he does take the role of high priest. Now, the Nephites have had 400 plus years to adapt Israelite practices But in the Old Testament, priests were responsible for performing the rituals of the temple. The high priest supervised those rituals, taught the people, and could use various means, including the Urim and Thummim, attached to his breastplate to receive divine guidance. Alma was one of Noah's priests and probably worked in the temple that Nephi built. So we can imagine that the priests had a similar function among the church. They were responsible for offering sacrifice and performing the rituals outlined under the law of Moses. We can also probably assume that they had some sort of tabernacle or temple that they built in this new land. Alma also chose teachers. There could have been some overlap between priests and teachers, but the way Mormon words it suggests that they were distinct responsibilities. Mormon does add that none were consecrated except they were just men. Therefore, they did watch over their people and did nourish them with things pertaining to righteousness. In verses 19 through 24, Mormon interrupts his narrative to give us some clue as to what he wants us to look for. The people are prospering, he says. They've called the place Helam, probably after the first person who Alma baptized, who is likely one of the priests and or teachers as well. And here's what Mormon wants us to pay attention to. Nevertheless, the Lord seeth fit to chasten his people. Yea, he trieth their patience and their faith. Nevertheless, whosoever putteth his trust in him, the same shall be lifted up at the last day. Yea, and thus it was with this people. For behold, I will show unto you that they were brought into bondage, and none could deliver them but the Lord their God, yea, even the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And it came to pass that he did deliver them, and he did show forth his mighty power unto them, and great were their rejoicings. I've said it in previous episodes, but I love the word nevertheless. Think of what it means here. The people are prospering. Nevertheless, the Lord will chasten them. The Lord chastens them. Nevertheless, he will lift them up. It seems to be saying, don't trust what you see. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Is prosperity a sign of righteousness? No, says Mormon. It can be the outcome of righteous, industrious living, but nevertheless, the Lord could take it away. Does that mean you are unrighteous if you lose your prosperity or if you never had it to begin with? No, Mormon says. The Lord has his own purposes. We would do well to take this lesson to heart. Too often throughout history, and we saw it with King Noah, do people mistake prosperity for righteousness and poverty for wickedness? The thinking goes something like this. If a person is prosperous, then they must have earned their prosperity. Therefore, if a person is poor, they likely earned their poverty, and everyone is getting what they deserve. Apart from being a destructive line of thinking, It's just not true. Who are we to try to account for every variable in mortality? Are we not all beggars? Benjamin will ask. Don't get distracted by what you see. It isn't the whole picture. And that's what this word, nevertheless, is there to remind us of. So here comes the nevertheless in verses 25 through 39. Despite their love of the Lord and of one another, an army of Lamanites shows up and the people immediately freak out. Mormon tells us, Alma went forth and stood among them and exhorted them that they should not be frightened, but that they should remember the Lord their God, and he would deliver them. Can we just take that in for a second? Four centuries of Nephite Lamanite conflict, and Alma believes that the Lord can interrupt it. Therefore, they hushed their fears and began to cry unto the Lord that he would soften the hearts of the Lamanites, that they would spare them, their wives, and their children. And it came to pass that the Lord did soften the hearts of the Lamanites. And Alma and his brethren went forth and delivered themselves into their hands, and the Lamanites took possession of the land of Helam. The Lamanites, it turns out, are actually lost. They tried to follow Limhi's people during their escape and got turned around. That means that this is around 118 BC, and Alma's people have been living in peace for thirty years. While wandering around, these Lamanites had also stumbled upon another group of people, the priests of King Noah who have also been living in the wilderness for about 30 years. The leader of that people is named Amulon, so we're going to call them the Amulonites from here on out. Mormon reminds us of what we last learned about the Amulonites, that they had kidnapped 24 Lamanite girls. If you remember, this caused a lot of problems for Limahized people. Well, the only thing that gets the Lamanites to spare the Amulonites is that they send out their wives. Remember, these are the women that were kidnapped 30 years earlier and the wives plead the case for their kidnappers. And it works. The Amulonites join with the Lamanites and are actually part of the group that has happened upon the land of Helam and the people of Alma. Getting back to Alma's situation, he's gone in defenseless to bargain with the Lamanites, and they promise him that if he shows them the way out, they'll give Alma's people their freedom. So Alma shows them how to get back to the land of Nephi. The Lamanites, however, go back on their word, probably influenced by Amulon who recognizes Alma and gets the Lamanites to allow him to be the king over the land of Helam under the king of the Lamanites. So the Lamanites left a section of their army in Helam under the command of Amulon and returned to the land of Nephi only to send more Lamanite families to return to the land of Helam. So far, this isn't working out too well for Alma and the church, and it's going to get worse there will certainly be opportunities for the people of the church to doubt the Lord and to doubt Alma's leadership. They're going to be oppressed for their beliefs. Why would the Lord allow such terrible things to happen to his people? Mormon has preempted this type of question with his nevertheless, don't be fooled by what you see. There are other things happening here. And that's a good thing to remember in our own lives. Mormon is a gifted storyteller. He's intentional and crafts his story to demonstrate how the Lord works through history to show his love for his people. We are also storytellers, though we are rarely as disciplined and intentional as Mormon is. We tell the story of our lives whenever we think about who we are and whenever we are trying to interpret why things are happening to us. We can imagine the time and effort that Mormon puts into researching the history of his people and then crafting his story and then planning out when we will refer back to earlier parts, and when to drop a particular story arc only to pick it up again. The Book of Mosiah is a perfect example of the effort that he put in, with its multiple flashbacks and chiastic structure that uses the journeys to and from the land of Nephi to place Abinadi and the founding of the church at the very center of the book. That took prayerful and inspired work. Are we as committed as Mormon to make our stories about how the Lord loves his people? Do we maintain that commitment when all of the observable evidence seems to be to the contrary? Do we utilize the power of nevertheless when trying to navigate the obstacles of mortality? I hope we try. We'll talk to you next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom.